LK Advantage Property Solutions for a programming grant. LK Advantage is a local business specializing in buying houses as is, in any condition and any situation. LK Advantage's solution is easy because they buy as is, meaning no repairs for the seller, they pay closing costs, and can close quickly. Complete information is available from Lobby at 843-644-1111 or online at lkadvantageps.com or on Facebook. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. And if you're a new listener here at 88.7 FM for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions and emails. Maybe you're studying God's word and there's a particular uh, passage that you're finding challenging or an issue in your life or ministry or church that you'd like biblical counsel on. Again, you can, as Rick just shared, uh, call us directly here at 843-525-1859, the South Carolina 843 Exchange, and then 525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is tbl, that stands for the Bible line, tbl at net. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. Well, Rick, as always, it's great to be here. You know, someone came up to me on Sunday, and they say, you know, I have a question from time to time, and and I want to ask it, but I'm at work. And, and I told them, well, you can email it to us, or you can email it while you're at work, and then uh, we will uh, email you back, or you can listen to uh, the response uh, that is given later on because it's posted. Indeed it is, yes. So uh, just visit us at wagp.net, and you'll be able to see the TBL or the Bible Line archives and just click on that. A listener wanted to know if there might be any problem with using essential oils that include frankincense. Apparently, you had mentioned uh, frankincense in a message uh, several weeks ago, and they were concerned. Well, you know, um, God uh, isolated frankincense, and the New American Standard, King James, I know some of the newer translations just render it incense, but it's the Greek, uh, the Hebrew word for frankincense, and in, in the Septuagint as well, they uh, use that particular word that is translated. Of course, uh, if uh, you were here at our Christmas message, we spoke of the gifts that were offered of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And each gift had a particular representation of um, of what it meant and what its significance was. So with that said, uh, God made it very clear that a priest was never to use frankincense for his own perfume because it was a spice that was particularly isolated to the Lord uh, to represent his person. The frankincense, of course, was a 
symbol of the sinlessness of God. It was this particularly holy spice. So, you know, it was important to God to detail that. So that would be important to me. So I think you kind of have your answer there, but I appreciate the question. All right. Another listener would like to know if all races hate the Jews or if there is one race that hates them in particular, and if so, why? Well, uh, what comes to my mind is the prophet Zechariah and the revelation that we've been studying in Zechariah. It says, um, it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. If you know the prophet Zechariah, he deals with issues not simply in his day, but he telescopes all the way to the end of time, uh, to what we uh, typically refer to as the time of Jacob's trouble or the great tribulation, uh, followed by the Messiah's literal planting of his feet in chapter 14 of Zechariah on the earth on the Mount of Olives, and then his uh, sovereign millennial reign for a thousand years. So he's speaking of a time in the future when Jerusalem would have all the nations of the earth go against her. Now the, the Romans went against, you know, Jerusalem in 70 AD. There's never been a time in all of human history where all the nations of the world have gone against Jerusalem. So here is Zechariah the prophet writing approximately, you know, 700 years before Christ, and yet he's given this detailed prophecy of how things are going to unfold. I don't think that's by accident, because God knows the future, and he has his prophet write about the future ever before it takes place. And so this is still going to happen. Uh, the um, John and the Revelator in Revelation 16, uh, he is given similar uh, information, and it says, and they gathered them together to the place, which in Hebrew is called Ha-Mageddon. Ha is the Hebrew word for a hill or mountain, and it's at a place called Megiddo, and that's going to be the, and so we speak here of the battle of Armageddon, so to speak, or better, maybe the campaign of Armageddon. It's Christianese that we are using, but God is referring to a particular location. Some of you have been with me to Israel, and we've stood on this very place, on the hill of Megiddo, and it oversees the Jezreel Valley, which is hundreds of miles long, and that's going to be the launching place where the nations of the world gather. And we read in Revelation 16 and verse 14, um, and they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. So in a broad sense, uh, we know that all the nations in its goyim, uh, ethnos or ethnoi in, in Greek, um, we would say the, the term Gentile, uh, all the Gentile nations of the world, all the various people groups that you can think of will ultimately go against the Jews. Now, with that said, why do, why do people hate the Jews? What might be helpful to you is recently on a Wednesday night service, we had Rabbi Hanok Teller come uh, from Jerusalem, and he spoke to us on the Holocaust. And at the end, I uh, spoke for about 15 minutes of why there is anti-Semitism under the banner of Christianity and uh, how that has actually served also as an impetus to foster hatred. And that message is online at communitybiblechurch.us. You might want to watch it. But, you know, one of the highest holy um, 
uh, festivals, so to speak, that the Jewish people can celebrate today is Passover. A Yom Kippur would be higher than that, but there's no temple to pull it off in. And, you know, and I suppose if you were to sum up Passover, maybe even some of the other Jewish holidays, it's basically the world wants to kill us. We've won. So let's eat. And there's always been this spirit of anti-Semitism against the Jews. And uh, over the course of uh, from the time of 70 A.D. till, you know, the mid 1950s, Jewish people have been expelled from country after country after country, whether it's England or France or Australia or Germany or Lithuania or Spain or Portugal, over and over and over and over and over again, uh, they have been expelled by 80 various countries. There's just this hatred, and people, you know, come up with different reasons. Why do folks hate the Jews so much? And so on that Wednesday night service, I suggested a number of different reasons why people just despise the Jewish people. But when you take all the air out of the balloon, I think it basically is more than just a human hatred. Behind it is Satan himself. You know, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that he is the God of this world. Small g, that is, he is the one who is uh, orchestrating the events that um, amongst the unbelievers of this world. Paul in Ephesians 2 speaks of him of the prince of the power of the air, who is now working. It's the Greek word energo. We get our word energy from it. He's the one who's energizing lost people, the sons of disobedience. So why does Satan hate the Jews so much? Well, number one, they are his chosen people. Uh, God has uh, chosen the Jews out of all the nations of the world, and a lot of people resent that. They say, well, you know, the Jewish people being God's chosen, who are they? You know, well, God in his sovereignty had to choose a nation by which we could identify the Messiah, and out of all the nations of the world, God chose uh, the Jewish people. Uh, I think Satan hates them, too, because every book of the Bible that we have, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is written by a Jew. Uh, The Jew, Paul says in Romans 3, have been entrusted with the oracles of God. And so Satan hates the Word of God, has always questioned it right from the beginning. Did God really say he hates the scriptures. He hates what the scriptures say about him and his ultimate end. So he hates the Jews, and he gets people in turn to hate the Jews. We also uh, noted on that Wednesday night service that hate, Satan hates the Jews because the Jews gave us the Messiah. The Savior of the world is a Jew. You know, and sometimes you meet these anti-Semites who call themselves Christians, and I think, do you know that the Savior of the world, whom you say you follow, is a Jew? Jesus is a Jew. He came as a descendant of David David through the tribe of Judah, through the family of David, and not by accident. And so Satan hates the world because the Messiah is a Jew. And I think he also hates the world because history as we know it, that will ultimately lead to Satan's destruction, will unfold through the Jewish nation. And there is a time in the future where the Jewish people Uh, Many of them are going to turn to faith in Jesus. In fact, God is going to use 144,000 converted Jews from the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel who are going to do something that we've been trying to do for 2,000 years. They are going to preach the gospel to every single people group in the world. God will put a seal on them. They'll be indestructible. Every tribe, tongue, and nation, Revelation 7, will come out of their preaching. Uh, There will be converts from every people group of the world. 
and the Great Commission will be fulfilled. And this, of course, is what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 24. During this seven-year period where these Jewish evangelists, so to speak, are preaching, and he said, this gospel shall go to the whole world, and then the end, referring to his second coming to the earth, will come. So Satan has many reasons. People say, well, you know, we hate the Jews because they say they're the chosen people, or we hate the Jews because they're so rich. And fact is, is that a lot of the Jews in the world are very poor and impoverished. Uh, but yes, there are some Jewish people that are incredibly bright, know how to handle money well. Some people say, as I brought this out again in the Wednesday night service, they hate the Jews because they're guilty of deicide. They killed God. They killed the Savior of the world. And all I would say is, look, we're all guilty of deicide because the Bible says he was pierced through for our iniquities. And while they technically did not nail him to a cross, the Romans did under the direction of a Gentile by the name of Pilate. Uh, Yes, they asked for his blood, uh, but still it was part of the preordained plan in foreknowledge of God. God, Paul, um, Isaiah says, and it was pleased to crush him. So God ultimately killed his own son. Why? Because he loved you, loved me, and he used our Jewish Savior to make a payment for sin. So um, is there one group that hates the Jews more than the other? I don't think so. I think it's just a general, inspired, strategic hatred that Satan puts on the Jewish people, and we know it will grow and grow and grow, and the epitome of hatred towards the Jews will come through the Antichrist. And I suggested in our series in the Revelation that the Antichrist will himself be a Jew. <coughs> and I hope that doesn't surprise you. I don't think you, uh, I hope you don't think for a moment that the Jews are going to embrace a Gentile as a Messiah when they have specific parameters of what the, what the Savior of the world, the Messiah, should look like. They know he must be a Jew. That's why some of them were scratching their heads over Jesus, and they said, well, we know that Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem, and Jesus is from Nazareth, so what's the deal? But listen, um, Jesus met all the qualifications, including the fact that he would be raised in Nazareth. That was part of God's plan for the Messiah, but he was born in Bethlehem. But it shouldn't totally surprise you that it's going to be a Jew that is going to lead a hatred towards the Jew. Look at Bernie Sanders, for instance. He's a Jew. He seems to hate Israel more than any Jew I know. I mean, you talk about him expressing anti-Semite behavior, yet he himself is a Jew. Well, the Antichrist has got to have a Jewish man who is going to lead a worldwide hatred. At first, he'll come like, you know, a man of peace and... People are going to think, oh, man, he's the one we've been praying for and waiting for and longing for, and he's finally here. And then they're going to realize what a fraud he is and what a fake he is and how he's actually Satan's man. But we cover that all in our Revelation series, and um, it might be helpful for you to listen to some of the messages I have on the Antichrist out of the Revelation series. All right, great question. Let's go to the next one. All right, while you were speaking about that, we had a caller come in, wanted to know what you thought about born-again Christians putting a mezuzah on their doorpost. Is it okay? It might be a um, an opportunity for witness. I mean, I don't think it's something that you have to do uh, in obedience to the Lord because this is something that God instructed Israel to do. And again, when you read commands in Scripture, context is everything. Some things are unique to a particular people, to a particular person. 
uh, to a particular group. And so, again, context is everything, and God instructed the Jewish people to do that. Uh, would it be sinful for you to do it? No, I don't think so. In fact, uh, it might, again, be an opportunity for witness. Someone's going to immediately say, look, I go to Israel, and I take, you know, 60 people with me, and um, and they say, hey, well, what, what's this deal? What's this thing on this doorpost? They, every store, every every home, every even hotels, they have these, you know, what's the deal? Um, you know, why do they have these and what's it called? And, you know, you explain the significance of the mezuzah and uh, it might be an opportunity for witness. Someone's going to say, well, what, what does that mean? And you can actually talk about the meaning of it. And um, most Jews would agree that within the mezuzah was the greatest of all the commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. And, of course, Jesus quoted that as the greatest commandment. So it might be an opportunity to talk about the most famous Jewish person in all of human history, God himself, who became a Jew. So, But is it a moral dictate or required, or does it make you more spiritual? No, not at all. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And David listens to us all the way over in Los Angeles, California, and would like to know why did God have Isaiah walk naked and barefoot? That seems to go against other passages on modesty. Well, God is never going to uh, contradict himself. Let me just turn there for a moment. I think you're referring to this passage in Isaiah uh, chapter 20. Let me just pick it up here in verse 1 of the chapter to give some flow. It says, In the year that the commander came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and captured it, At that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amos. Isaiah, the son of Amos, of course, is the one who writes this book. Go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips and take your shoes off, um, take your shoes off your feet. And he did so, and he went around naked and barefoot. So first of all, by naked, it's defined here. He removed the outer garment. Uh, Elijah, by the way, in 2 Kings uh, is described in a very similar fashion. So he's not like totally naked, but he's naked in the sense that, um, well, let me just keep reading, by the way. And, and the Lord said, even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years as a sign and as a token against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot. Um, and so here he's describing these people who are going to be judged by God through the Assyrian king. And so for three years, Isaiah goes around and he uh, walks, you know, with basically what what we might call gym shorts. Uh, His buttocks probably were showing. Um, It'd be like a male thong, I guess I could describe it. I don't know how else. Kind of sounds like Tarzan, remember? Yeah, yeah, kind of like Tarzan. That's that's a good, uh, most people don't know who he is, Rick. You're dating yourself, but watch out for the Hamgala. That's all I remember is, you know. Um, in either case, uh, you know, he, in his Tarzan-type outfit, uh, walked around for three years, and then God says through the prophet, so the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, behold, such is our hope where we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and we, how shall we escape? So God is reminding the Jews of the day, they're looking to the wrong person 
for help. They're looking to these secular alliances with Egypt and Cush. And God says, well, in reality, let me tell you what I, what's going to happen to Egypt and Cush. And to drive home the message to my people, Judah, I'm going to have my prophet Isaiah walk around in a way that these uh, Assyrians are going to do to these two nations. They're going to humble these nations, and they're going to leave with nothing but a loincloth around their hips and no shoes on their feet. And you want to make an alliance with Egypt and Cush, and you want your help to come from there? Well, here's their end, and so you need to put your faith in me. Um, so God would never contradict himself. God is, you know, consistent all the way through Scripture. And terms have to be defined in the culture in which they are referring to. And so when the Hebrew text refers to naked, any good Jew would tell you that he's not referring to literally naked, like nothing around your privates. He's talking about the outer garment, and the text itself describes it in that way. And you have other scriptures like Second Kings 1 that further define what, what is meant. And so he's not violating any, uh, any of God's dictates for modesty. That kind of leads me to the secondary question. When we read that um, Jesus was hung on the cross naked, yeah, was yeah. that the similar situation? I, I, I believe that. You okay. know, I, I, I believe that that's what's in view um, in terms of how Christ would have died. So, okay. yes. All right. Jenny listens to us in Texas, and she writes, We are studying a book called God Was in This Place, and I Did Not Know. It's by a Rabbi Lawrence Kushner. Now, she, was, she writes, I'm not a Bible teacher. I try to read it, but I have a problem comprehending. I, I listen to your book expositions on the Search the Scriptures app, and I read the chapter that uh, you're uh, teaching on. With all that said, I pray that my discernment is correct, but I fear that this book is wrong. I'm not sure if I'm correct. Could you please help me? I wouldn't know what to say to these women, and I hate that they would accept this teaching. My husband says, I need to speak up, but I don't have the courage to. I pray that I will, but the teacher has a theology degree, and like I said, I'm not a scholar whatsoever. Well, theology degree doesn't necessarily mean anything. Um, you can have uh, people who could even graduate from a conservative Bible-believing seminary with a degree, and they can be lost. Uh, listen, there, were, there was one guy who I went to seminary with at Dallas Seminary, and he went through the same program. I went through the four-year Masters of Theology, which meant he had in-depth training, three years of Hebrew, I mean, three years of Greek, two years of Hebrew, in-depth training, worked through all 66 books of the Bible. Then he went through the same doctoral program I went through, didn't quite finish because he got arrested as the rapist of Dallas, and he had been arrested for having raped over nine women at knife point. And he was also, by the way, a pastor of a church. And so, if I remember, his last name was Gobin, G-O-B-I-N. You might be able to Google him and even read some of those uh, newspaper clippings from the 1980s. So, I'm just saying a theology degree, even from a good school, doesn't necessarily mean that you're discerning or that you're even born again. Not to mention, there are so many theology degrees out there that are lousy. But all I would ask, and I think you are discerning, this is Jenny from Texas, you know, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner is not a believer. 
And so he's written a number of books, and some of the uh, titles of various books that he's written have caught people's attention, you know, met a felt need, and so they've read him. But he's not a Christian, and he's not a true believer, and he's not even an Orthodox Jew. And so the Orthodox Jews wouldn't even receive him because they would say much of his theology is errant. And so what's your Bible study doing reading a book by an unbeliever unless they're trying to do analysis of his theology and to compare it carefully with what the Scripture says and where he's in error. But if they're reading Kushner's book to get some kind of spiritual food, then they're reading the book of an unbeliever. Now listen, whenever you go to a church, whenever you listen to a speaker, whenever you read a book— and your goal is to understand Scripture, one of the fundamental questions you want to ask is, first and foremost, is the person born again? Not how many um, letters are after the individual's name. You could have a triple PhD and be lost. In fact, I I know a, a man that I studied under at Boston College who had three doctorates. He had a doctoral of dental surgery. He had a PhD in philosophy, and he had a doctor of jurisprudence. He was a Jesuit at at Boston College, uh, Father Joe Flanagan. And I had him for philosophy class, and I was just a new Christian. And But I knew, man, this guy is like weird. I mean, he's like really wacko. And Paul says very plainly in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. And when he would comment on the Bible, he would come up with some weird interpretations. But, you know, here I was, a freshman in college. I was a new Christian. I'd only been saved a couple of months, and he's interfacing with the Scriptures, and I think, this doesn't sound right to me. And in one sense, even as a baby Christian, I had more insight than this guy with his three doctorates did because he was lost. And so Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, if your group should be doing anything for him, you shouldn't be um, reading his book as much as you should be praying for his conversion. So good question. Appreciate it. All righty. Chris from Decorah, Iowa writes, I was reading 1 John 5 and came across verse 17, which says, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not uh, not leading to death. I thought all sin led to death, or maybe I overlooked something, but can you please clear this up? Well, it's a good question. By the way, I, I, I was wondering if Rabbi Harold Kushner was still alive. You know, what? this is an interesting thing. I'm just, it just made me think for a second. Dobson had him on his program years ago. He wrote a book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. I didn't really want to give the title because I don't want to promote any of his books. He, again, he's lost. He did something, you know, on Psalm 23 and some other works. But um, I, I think he's still alive. So that's why I say I'm, yeah. I'm not advocating praying for dead people. Yeah, it's no, what, actually, I was just looking. At, this book is written by a Lawrence Kushner. There, oh, that's two Lawrence Kushner. Ones, apparently, yeah, oh, there's a Harold Kushner. Oh, I, I was confused. And a Lawrence the two. Kushner. Yeah, let's see. So I let me um, let me row back my answer here for just a second on Lawrence Kushner. Uh, he's a Reformed rabbi, scholar in residence at Congregation 
Emmanuel in San Francisco. And as I read about it, it's, um, well, number one, it's Reformed Judaism, which tells you right off that should be a red, uh, red flag signal because there are three types of Jews. There's Orthodox, and within the Orthodox, there's all kinds of denominations and stripes, just like there is in Christianity. There's a conservative Jew movement, and there's a Reformed Jew movement. And by conservative, they're not conservative theologically or otherwise. The same is true with Reformed Jews. So he doesn't even um, shepherd, so to speak, an Orthodox uh, group. It's a Reformed, which is very liberal. They have a low view of Scripture, and so, again, my answer stands. It wouldn't change anything. But All right, 843-525-1859. And again, uh, okay, so we were back to the question from Chris. Uh, oh, yeah, on the... First um, John five yeah, yeah, seventeen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, can you explain why this particular uh, passage says uh, that there is a sin not leading to death? Well, uh, remember when, uh, and I'm assuming that your question, the, the, the origin of it is you're trying to put together a couple of different passages, one from uh, the book of James. So let me just read that and see if I can clarify. Uh, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So you can't ever say, well, you know, God God is making this happening to me, because one, it's against his purpose, and it's against his nature to do any such thing. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust, and then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So I'm assuming, you don't put it in your email here, but I'm assuming that uh, the genesis of your question is how do you uh, dovetail that with what First John 5.16 says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. So when the Bible uses the term death, it uses it in different fashions. Yes, all sin leads to death in the sense that um, there's immediate broken fellowship with God for the believer. For the unbeliever, all sin ultimately leads to another kind of death. It's what's called eternal death. It's also called the second death, which is God's eternal retribution in the lake of fire. So there's uh, different kinds of death. What First John is referring to is physical death, and he's dealing not with an unbeliever, but with a believer, that there's a sin, there's a kind of decision in the heart that a man can make that can lead to physical death. A good illustration would be 1 Corinthians 11.30, where you had some people who gathered for, it was a combination meal slash followed by the Lord's table. It was called the agape feast, and kind of like we do a potluck supper in our day, and and they would have with that the Lord's Supper. And by the time the Lord's Supper came around, <clears throat> at the end of uh, the agape meal, some people were actually drunk. Instead of uh, mixing the wine, as uh, it was dictated in a way that it would not be strong drink. People were drinking the uh, fermented wine straight. They were getting drunk. Others were gluttons. And the very table that, that they then approached with the symbols that 
should have reminded them that they had been bought with a price and they were not their own. They were mocking by their lifestyle and decisions that they were making. And Paul says then, for this reason, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you are asleep. And so when you see a Christian and you can clearly connect the dots, it's definitive, there's no question at all why they are experiencing physical problems, then you should, as a Christian, not pray for their healing, not pray that God would, you know, get them off of this bed of sickness. If anything, you should pray for their repentance. So just recently, I stood over a bed of a man up in, well, I'll just say another city. I want to be sensitive not to reveal his identity. And he was in our church oh, 15 years ago, and didn't like some of the decisions of accountability our elder board was holding him to. And so he left right around 2000 and been gone forever and ever and continued uh, in a downward spiral. I I have no reason to doubt that he's born again. But as I, um, I don't usually, you know, drive two hours to go see someone but I just felt compelled I needed to do this. Um, you know, he's not a member of our church, but I care about him as a person. And, but I could not pray over this man for his healing. And there he is, and now he's unable to function and probably will not live long because there's no doubt in my mind that the reason he's in the condition he is is because of rebellion and unrepented sin that he refuses to deal with. And that's what John is speaking about. So it is true, all sin leads to death, but not all sin leads to immediate physical death. Ultimately, all physical death, of course, is a result of sin. Death entered into the world through sin. That, by the way, is why Tim Keller's book, so-called book on Christian apologetics, undermines the whole foundation of Scripture because he's arguing that theistic evolution is a viable option for a Christian who takes the Scriptures seriously. No, it's not, because now we have death and disease for millions, in some people's minds, billions of years before sin entered into the world. And God is very clear that death, disease, and all the problems with it is a result of sin. So the ultimate cause of all death, of course, is sin. But John is looking at a more immediate cause of death, where a person dies sooner than God would have wanted them to have died by decisions that they have made as a believer, because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And that's really what is in view. So in one sense, all sin leads to death, and that if you're a born-again Christian, there's immediate broken fellowship with God, but not all sin leads to a premature physical death, and that's what First John 5 is addressing. So you're reading very perceptively. And so um, wh- where does this question come from? Decorah, Iowa. Decorah, Iowa. It's a great question you're really asking. So you're reading the Scripture carefully, and I, I appreciate that. Let's go to the next one. All right. A listener in Toronto, Ontario writes, does uh, Pastor Brogy have an opinion on what is recently happening with euthanasia of the elderly. I know that Pastor Berge believes abortion is wrong because it is murdering the unborn, but if the elderly or their family say that they want to be euthanized, is this also wrong? 
would this be considered taking human life into human hands and not leaving it up to God? Absolutely. God alone is to reign over the days that he has ordained for us, Psalm 139, not what we think should be ordained for us. So the pro-life movement will not only address the preciousness of children in the womb, and who would have ever thought, I mean, who would have ever thought that we would have come to the point where we have governors and politicians and presidential candidates? You know, it's, it's beyond me how so-called born-again Christians are lauding and, you know, that they voted for some Democrat who is in favor right up to the day the baby is born and a baby survives an abortion and that baby is kicking and crying on some hospital table and, oh, it's a decision between the woman and her doctor. Yeah, let's just kill the baby. That's what people, that's what some of these presidents, how could anybody in their right mind vote for such a person? It, it is beyond me. But that's what reprobate minds do. That's what depraved minds do. And look, we're not only ripping off the young, we're ripping off the old. And so more and more, you know, hospitals, because they are driven now not by, you know, privately owned boards, but by corporations that own large groups of hospitals very often. And the bottom line is money. And so even the insurance companies, well, what are you going to do? You know, how long are you going to let this person linger in the hospital? This is expensive. And there's some, I, you know, I, I'm not arguing against some medical reform. I mean, this is the only industry that you can go into the hospital and it's like you have no idea what you're going to pay. Well, how, how much is it going to cost? We don't know. You know, one guy goes in and he pays, you know, 20 grand for knee surgery and the other guy pays 60 grand. Who knows? You know, it's like when you have that kind of system, there's going to be abuse. It is undermining what God says about the fallen nature of man and greed. So I'm not arguing against hospital reform, but when you start taking old people's lives because it's inconvenient or too expensive, that, <clears throat> that is a sad place where we've come in America. And uh, if you have some family member who says, well, I want to be euthanized, well, look, you know, you're living in a free country, and I suppose if you want to put a gun to your head or do something, you know, you can do what you want. But if you're asking me if I'm in favor of it, no, I'm not. And if someone is in favor of that in their heart, you're probably talking to an unbeliever. I'm not saying that a believer cannot commit suicide. But I would say the highest, 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 highest percentage, maybe 98, maybe 99% of suicides that are done are done by unbelievers because of the way people reason. Again, a believer can do it. And sometimes there are drugs that are being given to people that, you know, are just, I had this dear family. They had been coming to our church for about three weeks. They weren't even members. And uh, this little Young man, uh, you know, the parents had gone through a divorce and they'd moved to a new community and he was so depressed that his dad and mom were broken up and she brought him to a shrink and the shrink gave him this, uh, you know, medicine to take. And, of course, most of these antidepressants on the label says, be careful, it may, you know, promote suicide. And so this young man who was a passionate about Christ, 
you know, would go on mission trips, share his faith, lead his friends to Christ, ended up stepping out in front of a cement mixer truck, you know, out on the highway not far from here, 16 years old, and I had to do his funeral. Um, They had no place to go, you know, they weren't a member of a church anywhere, but she appreciated, she knew who I was, and she knew I could hopefully preach the funeral sensitively. So I'm not saying a believer can't do it, but look, if someone prematurely, free of drugs, is reasoning in their mind, you know, if things get bad, I just I just want to take my own life. You're probably talking to someone who may say they're a Christian, but they're probably just Christianized because a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. A believer does, and I don't think a believer is going to typically make that kind of a decision. So you shouldn't do anything that would give credence to that or condone such wickedness, because that's what it is. It is wickedness. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, our next caller said that in listening to the answer you gave about illness, this caller is curious if you think that illnesses like the coronavirus are punishments. Do you think it's a call for nations to repent and to turn to Christ? Well, let me just say that, um, you know, God is sovereign over the affairs of men and nations. I don't believe in a deistic uh, Benjamin Franklin, I hope he repented, kind of view of God where, you know, God just, you know, wound up the universe and stepped away and it's just running by itself. Now, God is over all that happens. And uh, we, I, if you're asking me if I think that these are the birth pangs and the heartaches that Jesus speaks of, because Christians all over the Internet right now are taking the coronavirus, and they would say, well, these are the things that, you know, the troubles that Jesus said, you know, we'd come upon in Matthew 24. When Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, and he is asked about his return and he starts giving these signs, people will come in my name saying, I'm Messiah, they won't be, you'll be hearing of rumors of wars and so on, and actual wars, and, you know, kingdom against kingdom, famines, earthquakes, you know, all kinds of pestilence, as Luke indicates. Uh, That's not the coronavirus. Uh, This is an unfolding of what happens during the tribulation period. So when people say, well, yeah, another earthquake, we must be getting close. Um, Well, you know, it might indicate that the pregnancy is real, but he's talking about birth pangs. And when a woman goes into labor, her birth pangs increase in frequency and intensity. And so if you study Matthew 24 all the way through, uh, it's divided into two halves. There's a mid-event in Matthew 24, 15, the abomination of desolation. And when that happens, it gets even worse. And so it perfectly correlates with what you see in the Revelation, where God has the seal, tru- seal judgments coming in the first half of the tribulation. An event takes place that the Revelation speaks, where the Antichrist makes himself out to be God, as Paul uh, elaborates for us in Second Thessalonians 2, and when that event happens, there's 30 minutes of silence in heaven, and wow, what unfolds in the trumpet and bold judgments are just unspeakable. Um, that's what these texts are speaking of. Now, that's not to say that, well, maybe there is a measurable difference in famines and earthquakes and viruses and things like that, surely, um, 
but it should be uh, a warning at best that the pregnancy is here, but it's not what this text is referring to. Uh, This is an entirely different thing. But people want to be sensational and say, well, the coronavirus is all, you know, the first horseman of the apocalypse. I mean, just some really wacko weird stuff. It happens every time there's any kind of national disaster uh, that is unfolding. Now, do I believe that God in his sovereignty and providence can keep, uh, you know, a nation and protect a nation? Yes. And do I believe God is more inclined to do that with a nation that honors him? Absolutely. Yes. And so, you know, a lot of the things that we bring, we bring on ourselves. And so, you know, I remember when the AIDS virus hit in the 1980s and, you know, there was panic across the country that, you know, everyone was going to get AIDS. But remember, the, the genesis of this whole thing was sexual immorality. And if people just obeyed what God said, one man, one woman, until death separates them, and honored a closed system, there would be no sexually transmitted diseases at all. And so there's a lot of things that we bring upon ourselves because we are ignoring the principles of Scripture. I don't know what the genesis of uh, the coronavirus is. You know, I've heard everything from eating bats and skunks and all kinds of theories and the and the government of China tends to be, you know, have their mouth shot and I, I don't know what it is. Some people think that it's uh, it was actually devised by the Chinese government as a um, you know means of weaponry against countries that I, I don't know. Uh, but I do know that God can protect a nation. Just read Psalm eighty, where He says, "Look, if you as a nation Israel honor me, I'll build a hedge of protection around you. But because you don't honor me, you know." the hedge is going to be broken down and enemies are going to walk through and all kinds of problems. And in the principle for Israel, while that's a unique and special nation, in the plan of God, in a broader sense, the Bible says righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people, even outside of Israel. And so I think that, you know, we don't think we need God as a nation and we're becoming more and more secularized and What's really scary is what is happening in our nation. And I think some of the political things are an expression of spiritual issues. So when you've got, you know, Generation X and Y and Z and millennials drooling all over Bernie Sanders, I think, well, do you guys really even know what you're doing? Have you given this any thought, you know, as to what he actually stands for, what he represents morally? Um how he is really in many ways refuting what we traditionally call the Protestant work ethic, but it's not the Protestant worth ethic. It's the biblical work ethic. And, you know, we get everything for free. And, you know, I mean, we're, we're just rejecting a constitution that was based on biblical principles. That was a reflection of a Judeo Christian ethic. But the more godless we become, People are going to embrace those kinds of things, and they'll bring a lot of their own problems on them. But the coronavirus, well, you know, uh, what do you have to fear if you're a Christian? What's the worst thing that can happen to you? You get sick and die, and you go to heaven. That ain't bad, you know? So <laughs> let's go to the next one. All right. Eileen from Highbridge, New Jersey writes, 
Could you please suggest a reputable resource that explains how the Trinitarian inclusion doctrine is misleading? Recently, my pastor was starting to teach this doctrine from the pulpit and was removed as pastor. And although the church leader shared some information on this doctrine, I'd like to get a more informed perspective. Well, inclusionism, as it's called, is kind of a pop theology of our day that puts the emphasis on the grace of God to the exclusion of man having to make a decision uh, of embracing by faith uh, the work of Christ. And so it's really a, it's a form of Unitarianism. Uh, Unitarianism raises its ugly head in so many forms and expressions through the history of the church. Uni- universalism, Unitarianism, uh, teach that in the end all men are be going to be saved. They get there in different ways. But this Trinitarian inclusionism says that because Christ died for all, all will be saved, and you don't necessarily have to exercise personal faith in Jesus Christ. And so now you're denying that Jesus is the only way to the Father, that there is salvation in no one else, uh, no other name under heaven that has been given to men by which we must be saved. You're denying the definitive statement when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Hey, listen, if Jesus is not the only way, and there is implied in that statement a choice that you have to make, Jesus doesn't say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and everyone comes to the Father but through me. He says, no one comes to the Father but through me. There's a decision of the heart. We call it faith or belief that one must decide. And if Jesus is not the only way to the Father, he's no way. Because if Jesus claims to be the only way to God and he's not the only way to God, then he's either a deceiver or he is deceived. That would make him a sinner. He can save absolutely no one. And so uh, Trinitarian inclusionism, again, it's just a, it's another uh, pop theology uh, how do you how do you respond to it? Just know your Bible. Um, just just know what God says. And so, if you want to study this, you might want to take my course on Christology or soter. I probably recommend the course I offer on soteriology and the Institute of Biblical Studies through Search the Scriptures. These are courses that I've put together over the course of twenty years. They're taught on a seminary level. Uh, very, very in-depth. And in, so in the course on soteriology, I deal with universalism that originally, in this country anyway, were was promoted by <clears throat> Unitarians who later became Unitarian Universalists. Uh, but, you know, you don't necessarily have to be a Unitarian Universalist to teach heresy. You had Rob Bell with his book Love Wins that was put out on evangelical presses and sold like hotcakes and and now, of course, he denies Jesus is Lord, Christ is the only way to God, performed a wedding for his homosexual son, and just all kinds of wacko stuff. So you just need to know your Bible. That's what we need. We don't need a new book per se. We need preachers who are in the book. And if you read a book that gets you into the book, then that might be a good book too. But if you want to study this in in depth, go to Search the Scriptures. Uh, you can call them. It's one eight seven seven STS for the search the scriptures seventy four seventy eight, and you can inquire about the Institute of Biblical Studies. There's uh, no taking outlines that go with each course, and I would suggest that you take the course on soteriology. All right, we've got about four minutes left in the program, and some children. This person writes is anonymous. Some children have terrible childhoods with abuse and whatnot, 
and it's extremely difficult for them to love their parents, even if they come to a point where they can respect them. While I understand that the Bible commands that we respect and honor our parents, does it also command that we love them, or is that as long as a child honors and res- uh, or is that is it that as long as a child honors and respects their parents, that's enough to obey God's command? Well, you are confusing de- a definition of love. If you are honoring and respecting your parents, then you are loving your parents. You see, we've made love today a feeling. So if you're asking me, do I have to have feelings of love for my parents? Uh, the answer is potentially no. Jesus can say, love your enemy. Uh, who are my enemies? Well, I've, I've got some enemies. Um, you know, there are politicians who... Uh, hate what I teach, and they want to kill, say, little babies. Do I feel a great amount of love for them? No. Am I commanded to love them? Yes. Love is a command. If love is commanded, it's beyond the realm of feelings. When the Scripture says, love your wives as Christ loved the church, that's a command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Who's my neighbor? Uh, That was the question that, you know, Christ was challenged with, and he told the parable of the Good Samaritan. Love is a choice. It is something that is commanded. It is beyond the realm of feeling. It may include feeling. And so how do you love people, choose to love them, who are difficult to love? You have to love them by faith. And so in 1 John 5, it says, and this is confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, We know that he hears us, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we have asked, then we know that he has answered that request. And so is it God's will? We know that he hears us in whatever we ask. Is it God's will uh, for me to love a parent who is abusive, maybe abused you sexually, physically? The answer is yes. You are to love them. So if you pray according to God's will, you can, in faith, you know, say, Lord, I know it's your will for me to love my dad and my mom, even though they were miserable people, um, but I love them uh, because I choose to love them, and I ask you to help me to love them because without you, I can do nothing. And God will answer that prayer, and you'll be able to respect them uh as your parents, and that they were placed over you, they still brought you into the world. They still, no doubt, fed you and bathed you and changed your diaper and everything else. So not everything they did was 100% evil. But does it mean you have to have these ushy-gushy feelings towards them? You may never have them, and that's okay. But you can still do what you need to do. And you may never have some intimate, close relationship. And for some people, the only way they can honor their parents is to you know, send them a birthday card or make sure that they're taken care of in their old age, but they might not want themselves or their kids around them, and that might be the most spiritual decision in the world. We're out of time. Another hour's gone, but thanks for being with us today for the Bible line, and God willing, we'll be back again next Tuesday at 11 o'clock.